In one way or another, we all spent a certain amount of time and energy getting ready to come to church today. And if you're like a lot of the stories that are here, and I think some of our experiences when our children were young, it seems that Sunday morning is the time when it seems like you're always running late and there's always something out of the ordinary that happens. You know, your kids spill their cereal and milk all over themselves and all over you. The dog gets out and you're chasing over the neighborhood trying to find him. And, uh, you know, you can't find this, everybody's second shoe. It's somewhere here, but I don't know where. You know, just all these kinds of things happen. And, and you, you, have these, you have these experiences of getting ready to come to worship. And, and we make an effort to come to worship. You all could be doing something else. I have a friend who is, is not a believer, and he... His favorite Sunday morning routine is to go get the newspaper, make some coffee, and sit and drink the coffee, read the paper. And he thinks we're all crazy for spending our morning doing something like this. I think about it when I drive by, I see here and I see people driving by the church on a Sunday morning, and I wonder if people who are not connected to a church, what they think when they look up and see the parking lot and think, why are all those cars there? Why would people go do that? Why, why would they make the effort? Why would, they, why would they do the things that they do in order to be a part of this gathering when there's so many other things that are better than doing that? I think those are legitimate questions for us we probably ought to ask ourselves every so often. But I think there's a deeper question about our worship on Sunday. And it's this. What does all of the the preparation and all that we do for Sunday worship here have to do with the rest of our lives out there. Because when you read the scriptures, you find that what we do here together on Sundays, as valuable and important as it is, it has a larger purpose. And the purpose is that we come together here, we learn, we experience, we worship, we think about God, so that we spend the rest of our week thinking about God and worshiping God. Because worship is not something we do for an hour a week. Worship is all of life. And all of life is worship. The question is, what are we worshiping all of life? I think when you read Malachi's prophecy, and we just sort of skimmed some sections of it this morning, you get this sense that Malachi is talking to us about this very thing of worship, not just in a setting, but worship as all of life. Malachi is not only the last of the prophets, and when Paul said that today, I heard this collective sigh of, oh, good, finally, we're done with these things. He's not only the last in the scriptures, he's also the last of the Hebrew prophets. And he comes on the scene a a considerable number of years after uh, the ones before him, Zechariah and Haggai, we've talked about the last couple of weeks, And he comes to Jerusalem and he's speaking to exiles. And by the time he comes onto the scene, the city's been rebuilt, the wall's been rebuilt, the temple's been rebuilt. And and everything is sort of in place. There's no more crisis. The 
enemies around them have sort of slacked off a bit of their pressure. And now the people are just living their lives. And unfortunately, they're not doing so well with it. Because this is a prophecy that focuses on God making accusations against his people. I mean, you get to the very last thing and the very last words are what? Total destruction. Wow. Someone said earlier that in one of the readings, it should have just really emphasized that. Or I will bring total destruction. And you get a sense of the, the, the prophetic word of God to his people. It's a strange way to end, isn't it? In some of the translations, he says, I will bring a curse on the land. This is a serious prophecy about what it means to be God's people. And specifically, what it means to be God's people in worship. There is a dialogue that goes on throughout this prophecy. God making statements and the people asking him questions. God asking questions, the people responding with their own questions. It's a back and forth kind of dialogue that you get in this. And at the heart of their problem, at the heart of everything they're wrestling with and why they're struggling so much to to do what God wants them to do is this, this sense that they have a very small view of God. They really don't believe God is who he says he is. And when you don't believe God is who he says he is, it changes the way you live. So he comes to them and he says, look, because you have this small view of God, and he comes to us and says the same thing, because you have this small view of God, it has a bearing on what you do with what you have. Because people who have small views of God tend to be selfish with our possessions. We don't really believe that God is going to do for us what he says he's going to do. We're not really sure we can trust him. And so whatever we have, we have to cling to, we have to hang on to. The problem is God tells them, and he's saying to us, what you're really doing is robbing me. And they say to God, What do you mean? How are we robbing you? And he says, because you're not bringing the tithes and offerings into the storehouse. You're not not expressing your gratitude for all the ways in which I've blessed you in tangible ways. You're not giving to me what you're supposed to give. Now, does God need what what they're going to give? Of course not. But they need to give what they're supposed to give. Because the alternative, when you have a small view of God, you live, with the, you live a tight-fisted life. Because all of life is about trying to protect what you have because you're certain if you lose it, God doesn't care. God's not going to do anything about it. God doesn't have the resources to replenish it. So you have to hang on to it. And it's rooted in this small view of God. It also affects our relationships. When we have a small view of God, we spend our lives not only trying to protect what we have, but trying to protect ourselves. We we live selfishly in our relationships, and particularly our closest relationships. We're not really sure God can give us the grace to work out the problems that we have in our closest family relationships. And, you know, we all have problems in our close family relationships. It's just human beings being human beings. 
The problem that they have is comes out in two counts. He says, for one thing, it's obvious to me that I'm pretty insignificant to you, that you would be willing to marry people who are from other nations. Now, this, this is not a, a statement. God is not saying that uh, a racial statement. This has nothing to do with that. Absolutely nothing to do with that. It's about the kinds of gods that people in other nations worship. I mean, that is the issue. God is saying to them, because there are, there are stories. I mean, the genealogy of Jesus has women in it who are from other nations. That's not the issue. The issue is they are, not, they are marrying, the men particularly, are marrying women from the nations around them who worship Baal and Ashtoreth and Molech, and they reject Yahweh completely. They have nothing to do with Yahweh. And he says to them, if, if you think, if I'm not that, it's obvious I'm not that important to you, that you would, you would make your most intimate relationship with someone who is diametrically opposed to me. But then he takes it a step further and he says, well, let's talk about those of you who are already married. Those of you in Israel who are marrying Jews, Jews who are marrying Jews, let's talk about that for a second. Because you're not doing so well with that either. And the problem is, they are taking marriage lightly. Because they don't think God cares. They have to think about, you get to the end of this, talking about their, their marriage and how they're treating each other. And God says, I hate divorce. That does not mean that divorce is something that is irreconcilable between us and God. But it does mean God understands, probably better than we do, the deep pain that that causes everybody involved. But there's even something more going on here. It's a cultural thing to them. Because in that culture, women had virtually no rights and women were not allowed to initiate divorce. It didn't matter how heinously they were being treated by their husbands. They were not allowed to initiate divorce. But a husband based on the laws that, not the laws of God, but the laws that the, the, the Jewish leaders had, had uh, put together, they could divorce their wives for virtually any reason. So a wife burns her husband's bagel in the morning, and that's it, we're done. You're out of here. Or she undercooks his lamb, that's it, I've had it, you're done. Or she doesn't keep house the way he thinks she should. He has the right to divorce her in the moment. And the problem, I mean, the bigger even issue is when she's not married, she has no recourse for income or place to live or any status in society. No wonder God says, I hate divorce. You can't treat each other like that. But you're doing it because you think, I don't care. Where's the God of justice? He doesn't care what we do. What difference does it make to him? He says, I do care. It's because you've got this small view of me. That's why you treat each other that way. There is sort of this general sense among the people that the, the things that God is asking them to do and the way that he's asking them to live, they view as a burden. It's this weight around their necks that they would love to throw off but they can't. 
Do you see that in the first chapter when he talks to them about the sacrifices they are bringing? And he says to them, look, let's take a look at these, let's call them sacrifices. I'm not sure that's a good enough term for them. Because you look over your flock and you see animals that are mangy and crippled and diseased and are about to die anyway and you don't even want them and you can't get anything for them, so let's give them to God. Makes me think of the story my aunt and uncle told when they were missionaries in South America back in the 60s and they got a box of used tea bags from some people. Really? Why? Why would you send that? You know, it... It makes me think of, of what, how we would act. Because he says, look, try giving those kinds of th- gifts to your governor. See what your governor would do with those things. How would that make him feel? But you think it's okay to give that to me? Think for a moment of, of someone you would love to spend the day with. Someone in history, someone you admire. So you say, I'd just love to have the day just to talk and visit and learn and, and just, you know, have this opportunity. Someone in history, someone contemporary might be in the field of literature or politics or sports or the sciences or, or uh, entertainment, whatever it may be. You think of that one person that you think it would be so awesome to just have a day together with them. And you get it. And the doorbell in your house rings and you go and answer the door and you welcome them in and they sit down and you say, now I'm going to go get us some refreshments. And you walk into the kitchen and you open your refrigerator and you're looking around thinking, hmm, I don't know what this is, but let's see. You pull it out. You haven't, you haven't even seen it for a while. You open it up. It's like, wow, that's been in there for a while. And, and you throw it on a plate, paper plate. And you, you get some pop that's been open a couple of weeks that you don't want anyway. And you put it in some paper cups and, and you carry it into them. And you lay it on the table and say, here, hope you like this. None of us would do that. If we knew this person we admire so much was coming to our house, we would prepare the best food we can. Or we'd go buy the best food that we could. And we'd get out our best dishes and we would serve them with respect. And God is asking of us, when you think about your time and your talents and your energy and your resources, is God getting the best you have or the scraps? I mean, it says something about our view of God. That's why the messenger comes. God says, I've got a solution to this problem. I'm going to send my messenger. And my messenger is going to do primarily, I mean, a lot of things. But first and foremost, my messenger is going to expand and enlarge and and repair your view of me. My messenger is going to come to enlarge your view of God. Because until we have a a bigger view of God, until we have a a more biblical, realistic view of God, 
It will be difficult for us to live any differently than we are. And worship as life and life as worship will seem like a burden and a drudgery and something we'll do everything we can to avoid. We need a bigger picture of God. And so the messenger comes to give that. And when the messenger comes to give us a clearer view of God, we discover that God is greater than we ever imagined. There are lots of terms in the Old Testament for God. You should describe God. One of them, a pretty common one, is the term Yahweh Sabaoth. Lord Almighty is how it's typically translated in our more modern versions. In the older versions, it was the Lord of hosts. The Lord of heaven's armies is another term. It's a battle term. It's used 285 times in the Old Testament, and 24 of those are in Malachi. You might have noticed as we were reading through this, it's a little bit uncomfortable keep continuing to read, said the Lord Almighty, said the Lord Almighty, said the Lord Almighty, said the Lord Almighty, 24 times. In these brief four chapters, you hear that, because Malachi is trying to send us a message that the God we worship And the God who is asking us to worship him with all of our lives is the Lord Almighty. It's a battle word. It's the word that David uses when he faces Goliath. And he says, and Goliath's laughing at him, is, what is this? And David says, you'll see what this is because you come with me with swords and and shields and spears. I come to you with one thing, the name of the Lord Almighty. And in about two minutes, everybody understands who the Lord Almighty is. And the Lord Almighty is a term, among others, but it's a term that reminds us that that Yahweh is God alone. Period. There is no other God but Yahweh. Every other manifestation of gods that we call gods that people worship, they're simply manifestations of rejecting Yahweh. Either you worship Yahweh or you worship something else. But there is only one God. He has no rivals. Satan is not the, the negative opposite of Yahweh. Satan is the negative opposite of the angels. God is the Almighty One. And His power knows no limit. When Isaiah is in the temple and, he, and God appears to him, he doesn't say, Wow, God, thanks for showing up today. This is awesome. I can't wait to spend some time with you. No, Isaiah is down on his face on the floor trying to burrow through it because he's in the presence of the Lord Almighty. There is something about recognizing who God is that ought to instill in us a sense of awe and respect, maybe even fear. That God is who he says he is. That all things are in his control. And we can't treat him lightly. 
And when we treat God lightly, it's because we don't really believe that God is who he says he is. And when we think that, we withhold what we have. Everything feels like a burden. We think God doesn't care. Relationships don't matter. Because we don't really take God seriously. But Malachi also paints for us a picture. Not only that God is the Lord Almighty, that there is none like him. But he also paints this picture of the heart of God. His love. The very first words out of God's mouth in this prophecy are, I have loved you. He could have said anything. He could have said, all right, now listen. The first thing I'm going to say to you is, I'm going to punish you. First thing he could have said to them is, I'm going to show my power upon you. But he doesn't. The very first thing is, I have loved you. Because that's the heart and the nature of who God is. Everything flows out of God's love. And he says in chapter 3, verse 6, you need to understand... I, the Lord, do not change. That doesn't mean God doesn't change his mind because we see in Scripture that he does. It means God's nature, his character does not change. And in spite of the fact that Israel turns from him and runs from him and rejects him, and despite all the ways in which we run from God and turn from God and reject him and fail to live up to what he wants for us, he does not change. He is love. And he says to them, here's how you'll know it's true. Because they say to him, really, how have you loved us? We don't see it. So he says, well, here, I have to admit, I'm not sure if it were me, I would have chosen this reasoning to tell them I love them. I would have gone back to Hosea, who says, I've loved you. How do you know that? Because I have chased after you and I have wanted you and I have bought you, and I brought you home. But here God says, here's how you know I love you. I've lo- I love Jacob, your ancestor, and I hated his brother Esau. Now you've just confused us, Lord. Right? It's important to understand the, the cultural significance of God saying that he hates Esau and loves Jacob. John Oswald says that you have to understand the, the nuances of Semitic languages and the way Semitic people think. And he says, you know, in in our culture, typically, you know, most of us would be, at least our heritage would be Northern Europeans. And we tend to understate what we're thinking and feeling. We tend to be reticent to really share our feelings. Maybe when we really get to know someone. But most of the time, we tend to underplay what we're thinking and saying and what we feel. But the Semitic peoples with their language, language and their words tend to overplay it. They tend to say more than they're feeling. They tend to talk in abundant terms. They tend to use hyperbole. And so, when Jesus says to his disciples, if you want to be my followers, here's what you have to do. You have to hate your mother and father and your sister and brother. Now, we know from Jesus' whole ministry, he doesn't want us to hate our family. But he does want us to understand that if you're going to be a follower of his, nobody... Nobody is more important to us than he is. 
And this idea of loving and hating is also connected in covenant language about rejecting and accepting. And so God is saying, Jacob, I've accepted, I've chosen, and Esau, I've rejected. Is that because Jacob is so perfect and Esau's not? No, quite frankly, when you read the stories of the two of them, there are lots and lots of stories of Jacob being a deceiver and Esau being a pretty grace-filled man. The problem is, even though Jacob wrestles with God and struggles with God, his heart wants God. But Esau, even though he extends grace to his brother, he doesn't want God. And the decisions he makes in his life are completely antithetical to God. He doesn't care about Yahweh, and his life continues to move away from Yahweh. And and God is saying there are consequences to that behavior and those choices. But at the heart of what God is saying is, I love you. You're my special possession. And even to Esau, I'm never going to totally give up on you. But if we don't really believe that the heart of God's being is love, we'll never risk in our relationships. If we don't really believe that the heart of who God is, is love and grace, we will continue to think that the only way we can protect ourselves is to live selfishly. That we never really take risks in our relationship with other people. Because if I'm the only one who's going to look out for me. And God is trying to help us understand that he is always with us, always looking out for us, always drawing us to himself. Because he loves us. And it has a bearing on what we do with our possessions. I mean, do we believe that God love his intent for his creation is to bless us or his intent for his creation is to use us? If his intent for us is to use us, then we'll always be hesitant to give him anything. But if we truly believe that God's intent from the beginning and it always has been and always will be, his intent is to bless our lives, then we can live open-handed. We can give away what we have. And he says to try me, test me. Just give it a shot and see what happens. And he's not talking about the sort of quid pro quo kind of thing that you often hear and some people teach or preach that if you give to God, he'll give back to you far more than you've given to him. As if if you want to, here's a formula for being rich, give to God. Because quite frankly, That's a spirit of selfishness. What he's saying is, if you you trust me enough to give more than you're comfortable with, you will find that living an open-handed life is freedom. It's joy. And you may not get this, you may not get the money back that you give away, but quite frankly, I don't think getting money is the greatest blessing God could give us. I think his spirit 
and the joy of being in relationship with him and the freedom of life lived like that, that now that's blessing. He's the kind of God who says to us, just try me. I wonder what would happen if, if all of us said, whatever I'm giving to the church and the kingdom now, I'm going to give $5 more a week, $10 more a week, $25, $50 more a week than I'm giving. I'm going, I'm going to make a statement with, my, with what I have to be generous. Because I believe God is trustworthy. Maybe it's how you're using your gifts and your abilities. I've been holding back. I've not really been extending myself. I'm going to do that. I'm convinced that not only would our lives be changed, but I think our church would be changed. And the influence of our church would be changed. Because individually and corporately, We're taking steps of trust that this is who God is. And instead of worship as life and life as worship as a burden, we begin to see this is what joy is all about. This is what life was supposed to be. That every moment we live, we are thinking about God. Because every moment we live, we begin to understand God's thinking about us. And he's with us. And so you get to the end of this prophecy, and he talks about the son of righteousness coming with healing in his wings. That's a phrase that John Wesley, Charles Wesley uses in his hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And we become like like satisfied, fully fed little lambs frolicking in the pasture in total freedom. Because we've gotten a bigger view of God. A.W. Tozer once said that we were created for an everlasting preoccupation with God. We were created with an everlasting preoccupation with God. That kind of mindset can change our lives, our church, our world. Father, thank you for, for wanting us to see who you truly are. Open our eyes. Open our eyes that we might trust you. That we might live our lives, all of our lives as worship and all of our worship in all of our lives. And find your joy. Through the grace of Jesus. Amen.